Last Christmas, uh, the Miedema family, we welcomed not one, but two new members. Their names are Cheesy and Princess. And Cheesy and Princess are Russian dwarf hamsters. I have a picture of each one of them. This first one here, that's Cheesy, okay? Uh, the kids call her Cheesy Cheek Pouches. I don't know if you know this, but hamsters, they can store food. They have, they have a cheek pouch that goes from their mouth all the way down to their hip bone. They store little seeds and stuff in there. So that's Cheesy Cheek Pouches. And then, of course, followed by Princess, her big sister who is trying to escape the kisses of my sweet daughter, Eleanor. And Cheesy and Princess have really become like part of our family over the course of the last six months. So I kind of thought maybe the hamsters would be a bust and and they would get neglected after the newness of them wore off, but that has not been the case at all. Uh, The kids get them out multiple times a day. They get them out in the morning to say good morning. They get them out in the evening to say good night. They build obstacle courses for them out of magnetiles. The girls put them in their dollhouse and try to get them to do chores and make dinner and stuff. Just a couple days ago, Tabby Lopez gave my kids the idea of trying to dress them up in little hamster clothes, and so that's been a big hit this weekend. But I have to be honest, it's not just the kids. McKenna and I are all in on the hamsters, too. I mean, we love the hamsters. We talk to the hamsters. We give them little treats. We all love Cheesy and Princess, and I can't prove it, but I'm pretty sure that they love us too. Okay, so they they have become part of our family. And I was thinking about these little hamsters this week as I've been studying Genesis 18, and they're basically like glorified mice. I mean, that's, that's what they are. You know, they're just little rodents. And what stood out to me as I thought about our family and these hamsters is just how much human beings are wired for relationships. We are so hardwired for relationships. The Bible says in Genesis 1 that you were made in the image and likeness of God. And you were made for a relationship with God. That's what the Bible teaches. And even though that relationship was fractured because of sin in Genesis chapter 3, that instinct for relational spiritual connection is so strong in every person that we will even project it onto animals. That's what happens. We will even talk to hamsters and convince ourselves that they understand what we're saying. And you guys do this too. Those of you who have dogs and cats, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And this is not on accident. Genesis 18 shows us that God didn't just all of the sudden decide he wanted an intimate relationship with people when he sent Jesus into the world in the New Testament. This has always been the case. Genesis 18 tells the story of God taking on human form and sitting down and eating a meal under Abraham's tree. So that's what's happened in the first half of Genesis chapter 18. God shows up in the form of a human being with two other human beings who are his angels. And they sit under Abraham's tree and they eat a meal that he serves them. And this sends a powerful message. Even with all of the brokenness in the world caused by sin in the book of Genesis, God still wants a close, intimate relationship with people. And he wants it so much that he's willing to come down from heaven and take on the form of a man. This is in the first book of the Bible. In the first 15 verses of Genesis 18, God reaffirms his covenant to Abraham and Sarah. This seems to be the main reason for his visit. So he's already told Abraham in Genesis 17, they're going to have a son in about a year's time. Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah is 90 years old. 
And he's told him, you're going to have a son. It's going to be in about a year. He's already told him. And then he shows up in the form of a human on his front door. And he tells them again. And I think this portion of the visit is mostly for Sarah. I don't know that for sure, but it seems like it's mostly for Sarah. So of all of the interactions, all of the times when God appears or speaks, it's to Abraham. And the text doesn't tell us whether or not Sarah's there. It's implied that she's probably not there. Now, I'm sure that Abraham is telling his wife what God is telling him on the back end. But here, God shows up and he says, where's your wife? Where is your wife, Sarah? And then God reaffirms the promise. He says, in about a year, you're going to have a son. And then God speaks directly to Sarah, perhaps for the very first time. And he very gently corrects her doubting. He says, is anything impossible for God? And he's reassuring her, no, no, you're going to have a son. Trust me. You can trust me, Sarah. You are going to have a son. Now we come to verse 16. And the second half of the chapter, I think, is more directed at Abraham. What is God trying to teach Abraham here? Remember, part of the promise is that God is going to make Abraham into a great nation, meaning innumerable descendants. And God is going to bless the whole world through Abraham. We've already talked about how the ultimate fulfillment of that promise is that God would send Jesus through the lineage of Abraham, but there's more to it than that. God actually uses Abraham to bless the world around him, even in his lifetime. And so here's the, here's the principle that ties in for us today, 4,000 years later. Here's the lens through which I want you to view the rest of our study this morning. If you are a Christian, God wants to bless the world through you. Did you know that? This is not just Abraham. This is all the people of God for all time. If you are part of God's family, part of God's kingdom, if you are a son or a daughter of God, if you're a Christian, God wants to bless the world through you. And what's happening in this text is God is teaching Abraham a very important lesson that he must know if he's going to be a blessing to the world. So what is God trying to teach Abraham? God is trying to teach Abraham how to bless the world. So we're going to organize our outline around two main features of this dialogue, God's question and God's lesson. We'll start with God's question. Verse 16, the men got up from there and looked out over Sodom and Abraham was walking with them to see them off. Then the Lord said, should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? So what's the question? The question is, should I tell Abraham that I'm about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? It's a question that God asks himself. Should I tell him what's about to go down? And before we look at how God answers his own question, we need to consider, does God really ask himself questions like this? Because you and I do this all the time. This is the way we think. We have like an internal dialogue. We deliberate within ourselves. I do this all the time. One example, last week we had a potluck church potluck, and I find myself in this situation often at church potlucks, and the deliberation, the internal dialogue goes like this. Should I eat a third cookie or not? And then I think, I weigh the pros and cons. I look back at the cookies. I'm like, there's also Rice Krispie treats. And then I consider my options. Yes. Yes, I should. (laughs) That's always the conclusion. But this is the way our minds work. We, we, we go back and forth. We weigh the pros and cons. We have an internal deliberation. But is this how God thinks? No. 
This is not how God thinks. God doesn't have to wonder what's going to happen. God doesn't have to weigh the pros and cons. God doesn't have to figure out which decision is best. He knows everything perfectly all the time. So why is this presented as if God is sort of wrestling with this decision? Well, the reason I think we're given this divine deliberation by the author of Genesis is that God is trying to teach Abraham something, and by extension, he's also trying to teach us something about himself and about his plan for the redemption of the world. And this is what people in close relationships do. You let each other into your thought process. What's going on? You know, behind the scenes, what are you thinking about? What are you wondering? What are you dreaming about? What do you fear? And so God's thought process, it's not the same as our thought process, but he puts it in terms that we can understand here. So the question, should I tell Abraham I'm about to destroy Sodom? The answer, God, in his deliberation, he considers three facts. As he's trying to answer this question, there are three facts. Number one, Abraham will become a great and powerful nation. This is what he says. Then the Lord said, should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation. That's fact number one. Fact number two, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. So these are the first two facts. It's going to be a great nation. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. This is not new information in the story of Abraham. In fact, these are the two main features of the promise that God brings to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. But what God says next is new information. And in my opinion, it is one of the most profound things in the entire story of Abraham in the book of Genesis. And before I tell you what it is, before we look at it, I want you to first consider the scope and magnitude of the first two observations God makes. So he says, Abraham's going to be a great nation and God is going to bless the whole world through him. Think about the scope of that promise. God has told Abraham not once but twice that his descendants are going to be so many that they're uncountable. He says, look up at the stars, Abraham. Try to count them. Look at, look at all the sand, the little specks, grains of sand on the beach and try to count them. Good luck. You know, that's the idea. You can't do it. And he says, your descendants are going to be like that in terms of their number. And not only that, but through Abraham's descendants, all the people on earth will be blessed. This is wild. There, right now, there are about 8 billion people on planet earth. 8 billion. According to most estimates, there's about 1.3 billion Roman Catholics on planet earth. There's between 900 million and 1 billion Protestant Christians. There's about 14 million ethnic Jews. Now, certainly not all of those people are born again believers in Jesus, probably not even half, not even most of them. But that is a lot of people who at least have some claim to Abrahamic lineage. And that's just people alive today in 2023. That doesn't take into consideration all of Abraham's descendants from the last 4,000 years. It's a lot of people, is the idea. And so when you consider the scope of the promise, you're going to have so many descendants, you can't even count them, and they are going to bless the whole world. It begs the question, how is God going to do that? 
I mean, that just, it just seems so outlandish, so crazy, so big. How is God going to take an old man and an old woman who've never even had a single child and give them descendants that outnumber the stars? And when I ponder that question, my mind goes to verse 14, where God said, is anything impossible for the Lord? a rhetorical question. The answer is no. You think, well, of course, you know, if, if, if God can speak the universe into existence in a moment, and if God can flood the whole world, and if God can part the Red Sea, and if God can raise Jesus from the dead, then of course he can do this. But I kind of put it in that category. It's like this outlandish, impossible, outrageous, inexplicable thing. He's going to make Abraham into a nation, into a people, into a lineage that outnumbers the stars. It's ridiculous. But fact number three, the thing that God considers, what he reveals, is that it's not. It's not at all. It's not in that category. So fact number one, Abraham will be a great nation. Fact number two, Abraham will bless the whole world. Fact number three, God's plan to bring this about is simple. It's remarkably simple. Look what he says in verse 19. For I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. That's mind-boggling to me. I remember the first time I read this and understood it, I almost couldn't believe it. (laughs) The simplicity God says, let me tell you how this is going to happen. This wild, outlandish, outrageous promise. Here's exactly how God's going to bring it about. So how is God going to make Abraham into a great and powerful nation that will be a blessing to the whole world for all generations? Abraham will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by by doing what is right and just. That's the plan. That's the plan. That's how God is going to bless the whole world with himself. Because remember, we've already talked about this. The blessing, the blessing, it's not just that people are going to be happy. (laughs) People are going to be financially prosperous and healthy and have good lives. That's not the blessing. The blessing is that people are going to get to know God. That's the blessing. So humanity's relationship with God, individual people's relationship with God is fractured, it's broken because of sin, and the blessing that will come through Abraham is a restored relationship with God. It's that their sin will be washed away so that they can be reunited with a holy God. That is the substance of the blessing. And what's the plan to do that? Teach your kids. That's the plan. Now, that's not the only part of the plan. I would say that's not even the main feature of the plan. The foundation of God's plan was to send Jesus to take care of the problem of sin and judgment. But this is a major part of the plan. It was a major part of the plan for Israel under Moses. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus would say 2,000 years later, 15, 1,600 years later in Matthew 22, that this is the greatest and most important command. goes on to say, these words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol 
on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. God's saying, teach your kids. Teach your kids to worship God. Teach your kids God's word, God's promises, God's ways. It was a major part of the plan for Israel. It was also a major part of the plan for the church in the New Testament. Ephesians 6.1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. The simplicity of this is amazing to me. I think so often when people conceive of doing great things and having major influence in the world for God's kingdom, they think of doing something kind of out there, kind of outside of the norm. Like you got to go to seminary, you got to become a missionary, you got to go overseas, you got to plant a church, you got to do street evangelism. They think about doing wild and crazy things. And the older I get, the more I think those things are not that wild and crazy. Um, Those are just part of the normal Christian life. And they're all very good things. Those are very good things. And I think that every Christian should genuinely be ready to pack their bags and just say, God, you know, is is this the year? (laughs) Is this the year you send us to plant a church? Is this the year you send us overseas? I mean, I, I think we should hold our lives with open hands and say, God, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, that is what I will do but way more foundational to God's plan of redemption is simply teach your kids. Just teach your kids. Teach your kids. Love your kids. Disciple your kids. Pray for your kids. Guard and protect your kids. Win your kids' hearts. Make Christ attractive to them first. And if you actually have kids in your home right now, if you can't do that, if you can't win your kid's heart to the Lord, how effective are you going to be out in the world? It's simple. And you don't have to be a parent to be involved in this. God has designed the church to operate like a family as well. And so some of you guys say, well, the work is mostly done there. You know, my kids are grown. They have kids of their own. Certainly you can still have an influence in your kid's life if you're an empty nester. But if you're single... If you're a married couple and you don't have kids yet, you can still be a part of this. You can be such a blessing supporting parents who are in the thick of it right now through kids ministry, through youth group, through the example you set in the church, through your relationship with the kids in the church. We've got like 70 kids in our church, you know. The way you interact with them, the example you set for them, your little friendships with them make a huge, huge impact. So those are the three facts. Abraham will be a great nation. God will bless the whole world through him. And the plan to bring it about is simple. And remember, these facts are in response to a question. The question, should I tell Abraham I'm about to destroy Sodom? So what's the answer that God comes up with? The answer, yes. In his reasoning, based on these three facts, yes, because Abraham needs to know the way of the Lord, what is right and just. This is the thought process. If Abraham is going to teach his descendants the way of the Lord, what is right and just, then he needs to know what that is. And so do you. We need this information. What God is going to do with Sodom serves as a lesson. This is God's lesson. 
Verse 20, then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense, and their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. The men turned from there and went toward Sodom while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Again, this is for Abraham's sake and our sake. God already knows exactly what's going on in Sodom. He doesn't need to investigate. He knows all things for all time. He already knows they deserve judgment. He already knows what he's going to do. But I believe he wants Abraham to see how justice works. He wants Abraham to be confident in his decision and his judgment. And God's judgment is based on truth, always. God's assessment of every person, their life, their conduct, their speech, and even what's going on in their heart, it is based on perfectly accurate information. That's a fact. But he wants Abraham, he wants us to be confident of this, and he demonstrates it by sending his angels. He says, listen, I'm going to go investigate. I will carefully observe what is going on there, and I'm going to find out. And he does it in the view, in the sight of Abraham. He sends the angels. They walk down into the valley. They go to the cities. Then you get to verse 23. Abraham stepped forward and said, Will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people who are in it? You could not possibly do such a thing. To kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike, you could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? So this is obviously not Abraham's first lesson. Okay, he already understands some very important things about the Lord. He's not starting from zero. He understands rightly that God is the judge of the whole earth. He gets that right. God is the ultimate judge. He understands that God will always act justly. That God is just. And this is so important. If you want to be a blessing to the world, you need to understand this. God is just. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, I will proclaim the Lord's name, declare the greatness of our God, the rock. His work is perfect. All His ways are just. In the Hebrew, it literally says, all His ways are justice. So justice itself is defined by what God does and who God is. A faithful God, without bias, He is righteous and true. So Abraham knows that. But at the same time, Abraham is shocked. He is utterly shocked that God is going to destroy the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah. He doesn't understand how that could possibly constitute justice. And I think the reason is that Abraham views this as an act of God destroying the righteous and the wicked together. And he says, that's not fair. What about those righteous people that live there? That's not just. And so he says, what if? What if there's 50 people? 50 people who are righteous. Now, there's a lot of debate as to how many people lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. What exactly was the population of these two cities? And the answer is no one knows. I don't know. It seems likely, though, that these were large cities with upwards of tens of thousands of people. Some people say, oh, no, there's only a couple hundred people living there. I don't think that's very likely. 
The story doesn't make sense if that's the case. Some people say there's you know, 700,000 people there. I don't think that's very likely. That'd make them like the largest cities in the world, among the largest cities in the world at that time. But probably tens of thousands of people, big cities, bustling, booming places. Abraham says, what if there's just 50 people there that are righteous? Verse 26, the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And then this repeats itself five more times. Abraham says, what if, okay, what if, 40, what if there's 45? God says, I won't do it. I'll spare it for 45. He says, what if, and he whittles it all the way down to 10. God, what if it's just 10? Hear me out. <laughs> there's only 10. God says, if I find 10, I'll spare the whole place. I won't destroy it. And that's the end. That is the end of the conversation. And then in chapter 19, spoiler alert, God utterly destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. It tells us that he rains down sulfur and fire from the sky, and he burns everyone and everything to the ground. And this would have been a remarkably powerful moment in the life of Abraham. You think about this. So uh, he's been spending time with God and these two angels for the better part of the day. They're looking down into the valley. He's standing there with the Lord. They're looking out over the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's pleading with God on behalf of the people in the city. And God says, listen, if I find even 10 people, I will spare it. Then the Lord leaves. Abraham goes back to his tent, and he goes to bed. Genesis 19, 27 says this, and Abraham went early in the morning. This is the next day. He went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. It's all gone. This is a lesson about justice. This would have been a powerful lesson for Abraham. What is the lesson? There's three aspects to what God is trying to teach Abraham and what he's trying to teach us. First, God is the ultimate and perfect judge. Abraham already knows this, but this is very, very important to what's going on here. This is not a new lesson for Abraham. The second aspect is that God will punish the wicked. He is willing and he is able and he must. He will punish the wicked. In 2 Peter 2, 6 Peter says this, he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is coming to the ungodly. That's remarkable. So 2,000 years later, Peter identifies rightly that when God did this, when God judged and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he did it as an example for all of us for all time. It is so important. If you want to be a blessing to the world, you must understand God will punish the wicked. And he shows us this powerfully multiple times throughout history. Now, this is also not new for Abraham. Abraham certainly would have known about the flood. He saw God's judgment on a smaller scale in Egypt when Pharaoh took his wife, Sarah, which wasn't really even Pharaoh's fault. And God judges Pharaoh. 
God steps into the situation. He says, this is wrong. You can't take another man's wife. He sees the judgment of God when he goes after Lot, his nephew, to rescue him, and God delivers the northern kings over to Abraham. What I think would have been powerfully understood by Abraham, maybe for the first time, though, is the third aspect. The third aspect of the lesson, which is that God's standard for righteousness is not like your standard for righteousness. I think this is, this is maybe one of the main points that God is trying to drive home for Abraham. God's standard for who is righteous is not the same as yours. It's not the same as mine. It's not the same as Abraham's. You think about Abraham, he's, he's pleading with God to spare the city. He negotiates down to just 10. And he's got to be thinking, okay, whew, that was close. <laughs> That's close. I, I think they're safe. There's got to be at least 10 decent people living in that place. And then the next day he looks out over the valley where there used to be cities. And it's black. <laughs> and smoke. And they're just incinerated and he realizes in that moment oh my goodness there were no righteous people there zero now there was one lot was righteous spoiler alert again lot lot is the only person who escapes lot and his two daughters we're going to get into that next week but the idea is the way god views righteousness is not the way people naturally view righteousness and if you you can do a little experiment if you doubt whether or not this is true just do this experiment just find someone you trust and who's open to having a conversation with you and just ask them do you think you're a good person i mean would you say you're a good person if you really want to make this question uh, potent say hey do you think in the eyes of god you're a good person what do you think God, do you think God thinks you're a good person? And I've, I've literally asked this question or a version of it probably to hundreds of people in my life. And so this is uh, a little bit anecdata. You know, this is not, I don't, I don't have stats. But I, I would venture to guess that of the hundreds of people I've asked this question, 95% of the time people say, yeah, yeah, I'm a good person. Sure, of course I'm a good person. And if they, if they answer no, they are either extremely broken or they're a Christian. <laughs> but most people that you ask this question, would you say you're a good person? They're going to say, yeah. You know, I work hard and I'm honest and I'm nice to people. I'm a good dad. I'm a good, pretty good husband, pretty good mom, pretty good wife. I don't do drugs that much. <laughs> you know, I'm a good person, I'm a decent person. Everybody says that. Everybody thinks that. But if you ask that same person, okay, uh, have you ever told a lie before? Have you ever been lustful before? Have you ever been envious of someone? Have you ever lost your temper? They're going to say, of course. <laughs> of course I've done all those things. And you can keep going. Have you ever taken God's name in vain? Yeah. Have you ever loved something more than God? Of course. Have you ever felt hatred for someone? in your heart? Have you ever been bitter? Have you ever been unforgiving? Yes, 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 yes. And you know what God calls those things? Wickedness. Sin. These are not small things in the eyes of God. God says in Ezekiel 18, the soul that sins must die. 
Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned, all people, no exceptions, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the idea is there is no righteous person. There aren't any. God's standard laid out in the scriptures for righteousness is moral perfection. That's what it is, which makes sense. You say, well, that's not fair. Well, it is fair (laughs) because God made you in his image. God didn't make you to sin. God created you to be like him, to reflect his glory. And part of his glory is moral purity, righteousness, holiness. God made us to be like that. And we've fallen short. And then you say, well, okay, (laughs) but wasn't Sodom like really wicked? Wasn't Sodom and Gomorrah on like a totally different level than me? And the answer is yes. That's undeniable. People who say, you know, all sins are the same in the eyes of God. Not true. (laughs) In terms of justification, that's true. One sin makes you incompatible with God. One sin makes you condemnable to hell. But yes, Sodom was worse. Okay, Sodom was a special case. There are not many instances where God brings this kind of destruction in human history. So I'll grant you that. But in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 1 and 2, he's talking about the the type of extreme debauchery found in Sodom. In Romans chapter 1, he might actually be referencing Sodom directly. And he says there is a type of people that are so rebellious, so far from God, so corrupt, that they begin to trade natural sexual activity for unnatural. And this is like, the, it's like you want to know how bad it is? This is, where it, this is where it goes. That's the symptom. But that's just what's on the surface. That's Paul's point. He says that's just what's on the surface. It gets so bad that they exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. But what's going on in their heart? How do you get there? Paul describes it. Romans 1.29. He says they are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. And when you read that, you think, wow, that is the profile of a wicked person. But break down each individual thing on that list. There are much more common, much more mundane, quote-unquote, sins on that list. Greed, envy, quarrels. Have you ever been in a quarrel? You married folks. Have you ever been in a fight with your spouse? Deceit, gossip, slander, arrogance, pride, boasting, disobeying your parents, being unloving. Have you ever been unloving? You're going to be unloving today. Like later today, you're going to be unloving. That's what's going to happen. You ever been guilty of those things? Every one of you has been guilty of every one of those things, okay? And so have I. 
And Paul says those heart conditions unchecked over time are what lead to a culture like Sodom. And they are native to every person. This is what is in human nature because of the brokenness, because of sin. And this is why Paul goes on to say this. Romans 2, 1, Therefore, this is the same thought, Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. Do you think... Any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of His kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? So what is justice? What should your attitude be toward wicked, sinful people who rebel against God? That's the question. Those are some of the questions Paul is addressing. And I think Paul in Romans in many ways is teaching the same lesson to the church in Rome that God was teaching to Abraham in Genesis 18. Do you want to bless the world? Do you want to be a blessing to the world? Here's what you need to do. And we'll close with three points of application. Number one, hate sin the way God hates sin. Hate sin the way God hates sin. But here's the key. Start with your own sin. (laughs) Start with yourself. This is what Jesus himself taught in Matthew chapter 7. He said, why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? You should hate the sin you see happening out there in the world. The, the, The older I get, the more I look at our culture, and I think about my kids, and I get angry. I just think there's so much evil in the world, and that's good. You should have that instinct, but it should start at home. It should start in your heart. When you have a selfish or a lustful or a bitter or an envious thought, you should hate it. You should say, man, there's brokenness in me. That is so wrong. I want to change. That's number one. Hate sin the way God hates sin. Number two, celebrate God's kindness, patience, and restraint. Even though in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, we see God's intense wrath and judgment against sin, we also see incredible restraint, incredible kindness, incredible mercy. You see that in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. We don't have two different sort of characteristic sets of what God is like that are different in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's the same God from the beginning. He hates and punishes sin, and he's not only willing, but he wants to show mercy to sinners. This is the God we worship. He wants so badly to show mercy to sinners. And what is so outlandish about the gospel is that the same wrath for sin that God poured out in judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, he poured out on his own son on the cross. Jesus was the only truly righteous person who ever lived, and then he died in your place to pay for your sin and your lust, and your greed, and your envy. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, He made the one who did not know sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 
God's not looking for you to just clean up your act, put on your church clothes, get sober, (laughs) stop lying. He actually intervened and he sent his son to purchase righteousness for you at the cost of his own life. And he did that because it's the only way. You can't be righteous. You can't make yourself righteous. God has to do it for you. He has to cleanse you. He has to forgive you. He has to save you. And when you see sin in the world, when you see sin in your own heart, that truth should cause you to celebrate. God is merciful. God has restrained His judgment that was aimed at me rightly. Jesus died for me. There is hope for salvation and redemption. Number three, how to be a blessing to the world. Walk in repentance and faith in Christ, calling others to as well. If you see God's justice, you will see that you deserve punishment. And if you see God's mercy offered in Jesus, the only logical response is to turn from sin and trust Jesus. And if you do that, the only logical next step is to tell the world. Is to tell the world. Tell your kids. And plead with God the way Abraham did. Do you notice how deeply Abraham cares about the salvation of sinners? Part of that is because he knows his cousin Lot. His nephew Lot is there. But I think part of it is also because he's been hanging out with God a bunch. And he shares God's heart for people. Tells us in the New Testament, God wishes that none would perish, but all would come to a knowledge of the truth. God cares about broken, lost people, even if they are wicked. And so does Abraham. And so should you. Let's pray. God, thanks for just a lesson in your ways and what is just and right. God, I pray you'd help us to see the world through the lens of the gospel. Help us to hate our sin. Help us to walk in repentance and faith in Jesus. God, help us not to lean on our own strength and our own morality. God, help us to just let go of that nonsense, self-righteousness, and cling to you and plead with you. God, have mercy on me, a sinner, that that would be our heart. That would be our heart, God. And we would celebrate the freedom we have in Christ. We'd share it with the world. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.